everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Hey, good morning, guys. My name is Amos. I'm the teaching pastor here. And if you were here last week, uh, my wife Allison spoke. She did a great job, didn't she? It was fantastic. And uh, you maybe remember how she started. She started by uh, throwing some shade on our fantasy football draft. My wife and I are in a league with uh, some family members and old friends. We've been in the league for 15 years. She uh, made the comment that she got an A- minus for her draft grade. And then she said, but my husband Amos, do you remember what I got? I got a C. That's right. Oh, you, yeah, you guys are listening. Uh, <laughs> well, guess who played each other in week one? My team name is the Wolves of Winterfell. We change our team names every week, uh, or every, not every week, every year. And uh, that we, I, my name's based on a book that I'm reading, and, and her name, Kunzbaka, is based on uh, the type of Ikea cabinet that we got. And uh, in case you're watching on YouTube and you can't see the score, that says 131 to 64. And at the top of the screen, isn't it interesting, uh, Yahoo actually sent Allison this on her phone. It says, shame, shame, shame. Now, in most contexts here in the vineyard, we don't want to use shame. We don't want to be a place that pours shame on. We don't want to be a church that judges. But I feel like fantasy football might be an exception to that. But, uh, you know, I've been operating on, in that way, or at least I've tried to operate in a way that doesn't induce shame or induce guilt for a long time. And uh, we've been reading this book together during Greatly. And one of my favorite quotes from the book actually speaks to the, the damage that shame can do if we try to use it as a motivator. Uh, so maybe you remember this quote from a couple of weeks ago uh, where Brene Brown says, we live in a world where most people still subscribe to the belief that shame is a good tool for keeping people in line. Not only is this wrong, but it's dangerous. Shame is highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. Researchers don't find shame correlated with positive outcomes at all. There are no data to support that shame is a helpful compass for good behavior. In fact, shame is much more likely to be the cause of destructive and hurtful behaviors than it is to be the solution. That's a game changer, I think, for how many of us operate and a realization that uh, you know, like even for an internal motivator, shame is not going to take us where we want to go. And that's just, I think, one of the humzinger quotes from this book, Daring Greatly. If you haven't gotten the book yet, I encourage you to do so. If it's your first time here, we want to give you this book, okay? It's such a good read. Swing by the welcome desk on your way out. Grab your car copy uh, on the way to the moon bounces, I guess, uh, and read this book. I just think, I think it's so helpful. Uh, Daring Greatly is based on that speech that we heard just a few minutes ago by Teddy Roosevelt, but the book is actually about vulnerability. And we've been talking a lot about vulnerability in relationships, which is, uh, again, the research shows if you want to have a fulfilling whole life, it's really based on the relationships that you have and your ability to share who you are with people in an authentic and genuine way. 
But as we'll talk about today, uh, vulnerability is important in your place of business, it's important in your life as you take risks to move toward the things that are most important to you. And so uh, I'm going to just begin here by praying and then reading out of 2 Corinthians. So God, we invite your spirit here today. We thank you that you are a God who loves us, who is always trying to redirect us to yourself uh, because, of, because of joy and out of blessing uh, and, and actually you know, trying to take our shame away. You've actually taken our shame and nailed it to the cross uh, so that we don't need to carry it. And we thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, this is going to be a bit of a mishmash. Uh, we can call this the Amos translation. I've taken a couple different versions and mashed it together. As I looked at the Greek, I just think that this, this passage is one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry, uh, but also one of the most helpful uh, text that can help see us through times of difficulty, uh, and including like where we're putting ourselves out there vulnerably and sometimes getting hurt by it. Uh, so as I looked at, again, as I looked at the Greek, I wanted to maintain the meaning but also c capture the beauty of this text. So we'll start in verse 11, but then jump to verse 15 to 18 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, I mean, to that church in Corinthia, but also to us, our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. If you don't know the context, uh, the early Christians were uh, literally in danger of losing their lives at times because of the kind of positions that they were taking and standing with and for Jesus against the prevailing like cultural norms. And back then, uh, the, the risk of rejection was often uh, not just a relational loss or losing your job, it was, you know, you'd be hunted down and, and thrown to the lions, quite literally. Uh, but he goes on in verse 11, so we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. This light, momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our eyes on things that cannot be seen. So I'm going to be using the F word a lot today. Because we're talking about risk, I think I'm going to just, just say it right now. Failure. That's essentially what it means to take risk, right? Like, and the things that are really worth having, the things that are really worth doing, include risk. And by definition, if something is risky, there's a chance that you will fail in it, right? So I actually, I want you to just take a moment and do a little reflection and think of a time that you have failed. Maybe it was recently, maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was something small, like maybe, maybe it was a little failure of integrity where you said you were going to do something and you didn't follow through, uh, but, but maybe it's bigger than that, maybe it's heavier, maybe you started a small business and it closed down because you couldn't make a profit. Maybe you were in a marriage and the marriage failed. 
I want everybody to just kind of put yourself in that place and think about what that felt like. Is there anybody here who has never failed in anything? Okay, so everybody's got something. So I just, I want to interact with the room here for a second. Throw out a word or phrase that describes what that failure felt like. Crushing. I don't know if this will work, but we're going to try to like put these phrases up as they're listed. So crushing is one of the words. Survey says, here you go. <laughs> Not good enough, right? And that's something that has come up in this book over and over again. Am I right? What does the failure feel like? Defeat. Depressing. Loser. You feel like a loser. Rejected. Depression. Devastating. It's okay, Debbie, if you don't get them all up. They're like, they're coming at you like a machine gun. Rapid fire. She's doing a good job. Wow. This frustration. Demoralized. These are heavy words. These are heavy words. Can I add a few? Failure feels like betrayal, hurt, hopelessness. This is an important word. Grief, loss, disillusionment, bitterness, and doubt. These are heavy words. And uh, I was thinking a little bit about the times that I failed in my life, and they've been often and sometimes uh, significant. And I, I think about, you know, as we're starting this new life group quarter, what it means to risk in opening your home for the first time and hoping that you will be able to gather people into this group. Like one of the groups that's starting, it's the one that starts on Saturday, is a brand new group. And it's, it's a risk to open your home. Do you guys want to know what happened the first time my wife and I tried hosting a life group? We put a little ad in the, you know, the group menu. We had cards. We had a, this great content. We were going to do this Bible study on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so we cleaned the house. We set out the snacks. You know, 6.30 is when it's supposed to start. We wait for people to come. It's 6.40. Nobody comes. It's 6.45. Nobody comes. It's 7 o'clock. Nobody comes. Nobody came. So we did the same thing the next week. Cleaned the apartment, set out the food, waited for people to come. Nobody came. We, said, we invited people like, hey, we want to come and join our group? Well, we're already committed to a group. We should have been targeting people who weren't already in groups, I guess. But you, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, starting a group is no small thing. It is a vulnerable thing to ask people to join you in this thing that you are leading and facilitating with the hope that like our lives will actually be transformed and will be cared for and will be loved and people will celebrate with us and cry with us and grieve with us. Like the, the aspiration is there, the heart is there, and yet it didn't work. We, we started, you know, the next group we started went very much the same. We actually, we started this really cool group designed for people that were new to faith and we paid hundreds of dollars for advertising and we... Uh, we had a free dinner for anybody who would come. We had like people cooking food in the kitchen with, you know, with spices. It was good food. And the first night, 30 people showed up. It was so great. You know what happened by week five? We were down to three. And it was worth it. 
But that's not what we were hoping for. Like, that felt like failure. That hurt. We grieved. We were disillusioned. We were even bitter. And we felt, we at that point were feeling like God was calling us to start a new church. You want to think that we felt doubt? We felt doubt. Like, is God really calling us to do this? We went on and started a church in 2014, 12, 2012. And it kind of grew, and it kind of shrunk, and it kind of grew in a few years. It's much like starting a small business, right? There's a point at which you say, this isn't going the way we hoped. We had to close the church down. And I, you know, I was an emotional wreck at that time. It was, you know, it was my first big failure in life. And I just, I want to tell you, man, it's good to get that first big failure under your belt when you're young. So if I, want to, if, if I could encourage you to do anything today, it's this. Go out and fail a little. I, I'm serious. Here, here's what Paul says. Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart, on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. I want to take the shame out of failure. Some people actually take it so far to think that if I've failed, especially if it's uh, like in a church context, that I've sinned somehow, right? That I've let God down because I haven't accomplished my goals, like God is disappointed with me. But failure is not sin. If you read the Bible, you find guys like not just screwing up, but like doing things and them not working. And Jesus himself, like there's times where he has these crowds and then he says something and he like makes a bunch of people mad or confused and they all leave him. He went from like 5,000 down to 12. Like that's worse than going from 30 down to three. Like, and that's Jesus. Like take the shame out of failure, guys. Uh, Brené Brown says in this book, like sometimes we ask ourselves like, you know, if we couldn't fail, what would we do? What would you do? What would you risk if there was no chance of failure? And she says, I want to up that one more level. What would you do even if you knew it was going to fail? What is so worthwhile that even if you fail, you would do it anyway? I think God will ask you to do things that ultimately fail. I believe that God called us to start that church in Michigan. And it was confusing and disorienting to feel like God asked us to do something that ultimately didn't work. Now, it was fruitful. I learned so much. Man, I learned a lot from that failure. But it was hard, and it was painful. And on the outside, it looked like things were falling apart. Like, it was one of those things. We had gone all in. And within a month, our house was on the market. We were packing our bags. We were moving to a new state because we needed to find a new job for me. Here's the thing. I want to not just take the shame out of failure. I want to remind you that it's not the success that sustains us, uh, but it's about God's grace. Let me put this in a slightly different way. Today, I'm not going to say try harder, fail better, uh, although those things might be true. Like, what I want to get through today is it's not actually the success that defines us. 
I hope that your identity is so rooted in Jesus that it's that grace that sustains you. And so it doesn't matter if you succeed or fail. But that you find that place where you've given your life over to Jesus and so that what you do and the risks you take have meaning because they are out of love for Him. So succeed or fail, fruitful or no fruit, you don't fall into a heap. And you can continue to go forward. Uh, Brene Brown puts it this way. There's a, there's a, a normalization of failure, like assume that you will fail. And she says, there will be failures and mistakes and criticism. But if we want to be able to move through the difficult disappointments, the hurt feelings and the heartbreaks that are inevitable in a fully lived life, we can't equate defeat with being unworthy of love, belonging, and or joy. If we do, we'll never show up again and try again. Shame hangs out in the parking lot of the arena waiting for us to come out and, de and feeling defeated and determined never to take risks. It laughs and it says, I told you this was a mistake. I knew you weren't, you know, fill in the blank, good enough, maybe, smart enough, talented enough, pretty enough. Shame, resilience is the ability to say, this hurts, this is disappointing, maybe even devastating. Remember we used that word grief before? But success and recognition and approval are not the values that drive me. So what are the values that drive you? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. Is that true for you? I think one of the things that made Paul and the other people who were following Jesus so electric and in some ways, even in like human ways, imitable for us, is they knew what they were willing to die for. And let me tell you this, here's a secret. The only things that are worth really living for are the things worth dying for. Do you know what you're willing to die for? What idea, what person, what thing? Will you let that be the thing that defines you? Maybe, maybe you have a job where you can't say, I would die for this. But are there things about that job? Are there people at that job? Are you developing relationships in that context so that you could say, like, there's actually something higher that I'm living for here than a paycheck? We live in a culture that is spinning the narrative is trying to sell us, like, I mean, I use that word on purpose, that is trying to sell us something. And that is that real meaning and real purpose comes from getting the promotion, buying the bigger house, upgrading to the iPhone XS Maxim. <laughs> that wasn't a confusing brand. Like, you know, like, get the new phone. Or the Samsung, are they on 9 now? Who knows? 
right? Like, that's the narrative that's being sold to us, and that's a dangerous narrative, because that's not worth dying for. A bigger house, not worth dying for. What are, what are you willing to die for? Like, our, our, uh, the people who serve our country in the military, they have found something that they are willing to die for. There's ideals, right, that our country has, like freedom, that they say, yeah, I would die for freedom. And I hear, uh, I'm hearing young people say, I just want something to give my life to that matters. And I can say, I respect that so much. That is a good thing to want. It is a good thing to want something that's worth dying for. Have you found it? So for me, right, I'm saying I'm willing to put my life at constant risk for Jesus' sake. And to take that even a step further, I would, I would say I would die for you. Like I would die for this church not just as we are, but as what God wants us to be and will accomplish for us. I, I believe in the local church. Like, I believe when the local church is working right, its beauty is breathtaking. Its essence mirrors the very essence of God himself. Like, its power could take your breath away. I believe in the power of the local church and of what we can be when it's functioning right because I believe in that because when the local church is working right it looks like Jesus and Jesus is those things Jesus beauty is breathtaking he's powerful his essence mirrors that of the love of God and and when the local church is working right it envelops the lonely it comforts the grieving it breaks the chains of addiction. It stands up for the oppressed, right? Because Jesus does those things. And that's what I think we are and what we will be. We can be a people who love like Jesus. And that's going to take risk. And I think that in particular, over the next 25 years, God is going to call us to take bigger risks. This is an exciting time for our church, I think. Uh, some of you know that our lead pastor, Bob, is retiring at the end of this month. So in two weeks, he will be preaching his last sermon as lead pastor of this church. And he has poured himself into this place. Like, he has accomplished here what Allison and I tried to accomplish in Michigan, uh, however many years ago that was. And I think, you know, he, it's because he's humble and he's generous and, and he was willing to, like, pour his life into this place and into some people that are, that are here sitting in this room over the course of 25 years. And so, like, we stand on his shoulders just as he stands on Jesus' shoulders. But, like, with his retirement, there's going to be risk in this transition. And I want to talk about the transition just for a second. Like, one of the things that's going to be risky is as we've prayed and as we discern, we feel like God is calling Allison and I to lead together. 
like as co-lead pastors, which is risky in part because uh, some of you guys know women haven't really even been allowed into formal leadership in the church for a long time. And so there's not a lot of models for how to do this right. And so we might get it wrong. In fact, this might not work, but we're going to try it because we think this is what God is calling us to do. It's worth failing. It's worth risking. And just to put some language around this, uh, we think that this co-lead thing maybe looks a little bit like parenting. We're not parents, so we don't know exactly what that is. But So as, we, as we've heard, uh, I don't mean that in a diminishing way, but like think about as, as parents, you are equal in authority, right, to your kids, if you're egalitarians, I guess, that may be, anyway. You have equal responsibility. That's, that's less um, controversial. But you're differentiated in roles. So um, you're responsible for the well-being of your kids if you're married. Husband and wife, equally responsible that they are doing okay. But you probably don't both help them with their math homework. Am I right? Maybe you do. I mean, maybe if you're engineers, there's a lot of you. Uh, so, but, but anyway, uh, just, just to explain that a little bit, like, I'm going to be, my role is going to be the primary teaching pastor. Like, I'm going to be the one who talks most of the time from the stage. I'm going to continue to do connect ministry, which is, you know, I'm trying, I'm always trying to help people make connections, like make friends with other people around here, to get involved, to find a life group, uh, you know, just to, to join the life of our church. Allison, you're going to really like her, because she's way better at these things than I am. She's going to be taking on groups, uh, in particular group leadership. She's going to be developing leaders. She's going to be, I don't know, a whole variety of other things that you'll be discovering <laughs> as we go. And so we're going to be like trying and experimenting and risking. And, and, and here we go. And I, we've been, I've been uh, like in formal ministry for almost 10 years now. This is, you know, I've worked with a lot of churches uh, or several churches, and I feel like I've learned a lot, but I have all kinds of things to learn yet. Like, I'm going to screw up. Allison will too. Probably not as much as me. <laughs> but I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm going to fail, and it's because I'm going to be doing things that I've never done before. And I think we're going to make mistakes together and we're going to fail because we're going to be doing things that we've never done before. Because God doesn't often call you to the same thing over and over and over. Sometimes he does, but he often calls you to something new. And we're going to be trying things that maybe nobody has ever tried before. And, and we're going to screw up. Just this week, somebody was hot mad at me. And it was my fault. Because I made a mistake. Like, I failed the person. And they were mad, and I apologized, and I think we're good. But I'm asking you, or I'm reminding you, or I'm pleading with you, like, we're going to take risks and we're going to fail. And I don't want there to be shame in that. You're going to start groups, and they're going to fail, and it's okay. Don't let that be the thing that defines you. You figure out what you're willing to die for, and so that even when you fail, you get up and you keep going. 
I think the real risk, guys, is in never taking risks. Which is counterintuitive and maybe paradoxical. We think, well, that make, in fact, maybe that doesn't even make sense. We think that playing it safe is to retreat and stay in our comfort zones. But this is a dangerous thing to do. Playing it safe is maybe the most dangerous thing that you can do for your hearts, for your families, for this church, for our communities. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the, with the, um, the quote that we've been reading, alludes to this risk, right? Teddy Roosevelt says, in the positive sense, the credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, right? But then listen to this, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error. There is no effort without error and shortcoming. Who spends himself in a worthy cause, right? What are you wanting or willing to die for? Who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. You see what the risk is in not taking risks? You see what the danger is? The risk is that you will become cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. The risk is that you will have walled yourself off, that you will have not taken the risks, but then not achieved your dreams or your goals. It's kind of like uh, William Wallace says in Braveheart. You know the quote, right? Some of you do. Every man dies. Not everyone truly lives. Is that too old of a movie? Everybody knows that movie. <laughs> not, not too old. Of. I always, I work with the youth sometimes, and sometimes they are confused <laughs> by me. I'm not going to belabor that point. This light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, but rather we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. You know what light and momentary affliction he's talking about? The light and momentary affliction. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake. Our light and momentary affliction. We might die today. You know what point he's making? He's not saying, he's not trying to minimize how hard life can be. Like he's saying, like, it feels like things are falling apart. In fact, if you look at the Greek, the original language here, he, it's even stronger. Like, you know what it feels like? It feels like we're dying all the time. We're putting ourselves out there for Jesus. Like, we're failing, like failure it feels a little bit like death. Like when you fail, something dies a little bit, right? That's why you have to grieve failure. But when he comes back and says even stronger, but you know how it works? God is bringing us to new life every day. So this is, this is a pretty dense and powerful passage because he's saying in that, in that dying and rising, there is meaning. In this failing and succeeding and failing and succeeding, there is meaning. He says it is producing for us 
an eternal weight of glory. Another way to say this, it's producing in us something that will last forever. And I think I used to understand this passage as saying, like, sucks to be you because in this life it's going to be tough, but in the next life just know that your treasure chest is nice and full, right? <laughs> like every time you suffer here, you get another gold coin. I think that's not at all what Paul is saying. Some, of the, some translations lead you that way because it's using the future tense. This is a present tense, ongoing, like motion picture action verb when he says it is producing in you something right now, all the time, that will last forever. He's saying like in the failure, uh, in the suffering, it is actually transforming you to be beautiful. How does that work? I'm not totally sure. But I think we can talk about it like maybe on a lower shelf, just from like a practical human level, right? So, uh, Allison said last week that often success goes to our head and failure goes to our heart. And you kind of know what that means, right? Uh, when we succeed, our ego gets big and we think that we're awesome. And when we fail, right, we feel it here. Like we feel pain and hurt and we're down. We feel defeated, right, in our heart. But what if, I'm just asking, like, what if the opposite were true? Like, what if when we failed, we let that go to our head? And when we succeed, we let that go to our heart? Here's what I mean. What would it look like for success to go to our heart? Instead of becoming an egomaniac, we, like, actually get to live in that place of joy and gratitude and, like, all right, this is good. And when we fail, instead of like feeling like we are failures, right, we learn from those mistakes. So, so like at a very, this is low shelf, right, human level, easier to understand. If we fail and let it go to our head, we can learn from our mistakes and we can, you know, you've heard the phrase, fail forward. So, man, the first group Allison and I led in Grand Rapids, nobody showed up. The second group, we got people to show up, but it tinkered out. Uh, by the time we started a group in Iowa, about four years ago now, it started here and it, kept, it like it maintained, it grew, it like it went in the direction we wanted to and people's lives like were starting to look like Jesus' life, whether they'd been going to church for 20 years or two months. It was so cool. But we learned a couple of things along the way. Like the process of risking and failing and getting back up again taught us some things. And that's a benefit of failure. In fact, man, I don't know how many of you guys like to mountain ski. I don't think I really do, but I've done it a couple times. <laughs> but what I do is I, I start on the bunny hill every time because I don't go that often. But I only do the bunny hill once, and then I move up to the next highest hill, the next highest hill, the next highest hill. And I, I don't feel like I'm having any fun unless I'm, like, falling down. <laughs> is that weird? It's a little bit weird. In fact, I, I'm not very good at, you know, they, they call that, you go back and forth thing, I think it's traversing, or turning, I guess. <laughs> I think traversing is the official ski word, but that's essentially, you're essentially turning, yes. I do more of the, like, sit-down turnaround method, where I, like, well, this is great. <laughs> okay, turn the skis the other way, ah, and then I fall. So, anyway, I'm not growing as a skier unless I'm like crashing and burning a little bit. Like I'm not pushing myself, right? And I'm, every time I succeed, 
I try the next level of thing, and it's pretty, there's a pretty good chance that I'll fail in the next hill. Like, I will, I will fall at the next level of difficulty. It's pretty guaranteed, and I think that's how it works with most of life. Okay, that's, uh, that's like lower shelf. This light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. To take this to the like more difficult, I'm not claiming to have all the answers spiritual level, I think this is actually an articulation of the gospel. It's, it's an articulation of how grace works, how the good news works, what the good news is, how Jesus can function in our life if we let him in, which is a risk, I realize. But uh, in the statement, like he's actually he's saying we're looking at the things that we cannot see rather than on the things that we can see, right, which is the external, the failure, or whatever. And, and there, I think there's some hints uh, before this passage and after this passage that we didn't read today because you would have stopped listening probably because it would be too long. But some of you are familiar with the passage pre- immediately before this uh, that we read. <clears throat> it's that passage about jars of clay. And uh, let's see here if I can just find it quick. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. You can't see it because it's inside, but it's a light shining. And then immediately after this passage, he's actually pointing forward to an ultimate hope. If you look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about the new creation, the ultimate like resurrection of the dead. And he says, you know what it's going to be like? at the end of the world when Jesus returns, you're going to have bodies like Jesus. You are going to reflect who he is totally in your entire being. So Paul is pointing us in and he's pointing us forward to something that is beautiful beyond comprehension, right? Jesus that dwells in our hearts even now through his spirit. Again, if you, if you let him in, and I find, I find that in the gospel, in the good news, it like comes up over and again. Like, to have life, you must die. God's power is made perfect in trying hard? No. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And here, Paul is saying, you have to die and rise all the time. Die and rise. Die to who you were and rise to who Jesus has like dreamed for you to become. And I, I've just found this true in my own life. Like the more I fail, oh man, I had this this week, right? Like, oh crap. Like I have reached my limits. I have no more to give. And then you come to this point of realizing it's not about me, <laughs> right? In the dying I actually move out of the center of my existence. Like, you forget, I forget at least, maybe you don't, like, I forget that I'm actually a pretty self-centered, selfish human being. And when I fail, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I want Jesus to be in the center. I don't want self to be in the center, I want Jesus to be in the center. And have you ever noticed, I'm not saying this about myself, this could come off the wrong way, but the people who always say, oh, I'm so selfish, are they the most selfish people you've ever met? No, they're the least selfish. 
The people you meet who say, I am selfish, they are the least selfish, but it's because they have compared, they've, they're dying to self, and they've seen like, oh man, compared to Jesus, I am selfish, and I actually want Jesus to be in the center, right? It's like a, it's, it's a healthy comparison of like, I'm not Jesus, I should let Jesus in, you know what I mean? And so let me hear, let, let me say this, I hope that you hear this, you're suffering, your failure, your, your failed business, your failed marriage, your broken promises. It's not meaningless. If you've invited Jesus in, he's actually using all that to produce in you a beauty that will last forever and ever. good news, am I right? All right, let's pray. God, we invite you to be the center. And I ask that if there's anybody in this room right now who's thinking about maybe letting you into the center, but who hasn't yet taken that risk, and it it does feel risky, uh, that now would just be a time where you say, I'm here. Jesus, communicate to the person that you're here. Give the person the courage to invite you in. And we all need that, actually. We all need more of you. So even in this time, I pray that we would die to self, but be raised up into new life. A new life that is really and ultimately your life. So come, Holy Spirit. Each one of those failures that we thought about earlier, I want you to touch with your healing hand. Use them to transform us to be more like you. And, and where shame has come into our hearts, God, where feelings of hurt and betrayal have clouded our vision, I pray that you would replace those things with new and fresh dreams. And so even just in this moment, we ask, God, give us new dreams. Call us to new things. Or renew calling for old things. And again, if just in your heart right now, guys, just say, God, what is it? What is it you want to say to me? Come, Holy Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.